for engaging and just the basic act of hospitality, saying hello to your neighbors, greeting them. Uh, this is part of what it means to be a community, is to, to see each other and to know each other. And depending on which service you come to, uh, which section you sit in, if you're back, I mean, there's all kinds of opportunities to miss each other. So hopefully this is a good time to get to know uh, one another and practice just some basic social skills that we seem to be lacking in our society at large. Uh, my name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. Welcome. So glad that you're here. If you're new or um, if you've missed the last two weeks, uh, I want to encourage you to go back and catch up on our, on our podcast because we are in week t- uh, three of a four-week series on um, a spiritual practice that the Bible calls justice and reconciliation. And so last week in particular, we looked at um, a few threads of kind of our story, both as a country and as a city, um, when it comes to racial injustice and division. And so I want to encourage you, a lot of what we're talking about today really even builds off of uh, last week. And so I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. And so we talked about our story as a, as a city. And again, several people pointed out, and we always, whenever we tell a story, um, there are elements that we're including and elements that we're leaving out. And so that's not the whole story of Indianapolis. We have a complicated relationship with race and ethnicity and the church but we, we tried to just kind of identify some of those kind of watershed moments that have shaped race, race relations in the city. Um, and then also talk, I think what we don't talk about a lot is the church's role in that. How was the church specifically involved and complicit in some of those, in, in the shaping of kind of the social architecture of the city? Um, and so we ended last week's message, which is kind of heavy, um, asking this question, what do we do with all of this sin, with all of this injustice, with all of this division that we see uh, in our city. We, we, we talked very honestly about that, and we said that the place to start is not um, a place of shaming people or just kind of doing what's happening right now culturally, just raging without redemption, but we wanted to start by um, speaking the truth in love, to quote the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, um, and we said that first starts with ourselves, right? We speak the truth in love to ourselves first, confronting and confessing our own sins first, um, one of the discussions we had in our missional community this week, uh, somebody in our, our missional community said, you know, when I look back on the history of India and I think about the Klan's activity here, for instance, in the 20s, uh, this person said, you know, it's easy for me to distance myself and to think that that couldn't have been me or couldn't have been us, but the reality is uh, it very well likely would have been me, just statistically. Um, and so that's the kind of confession that we, we need to embrace is uh, this isn't just a problem out there, this is a problem in here that all of us in different ways are engaged in. And so we, we said that uh, if you look at the prophetic literature, if you want to be a prophetic church, uh, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, uh, they always said, woe is me, before they said, woe is you. And so we wanted to start at that place last week. But today, we want to move uh, from me to we. Um, confession and repentance in the Bible never stops with individuals. It always moves from a personal to a collective we. And so I want to talk about um, some of the movements that get us to a place where we're going we're to talk about today and we're going to practice lament. Um, and that's a foreign concept for many of us, depending on your church tradition. You may not have encountered that, and we'll talk more about that. But I, I think there's two basic movements here to get uh, to a place where we can really um, own this, right? Kind of own this and live into what the Bible has for us when it comes to uh, justice and reconciliation. And the first movement is uh, corporate identification, right, or, or what some people call corporate responsibility. And we'll talk about what that is in a second, but let me just pause at the beginning to say there are barriers for us to get to that place where we can really 
uh, identify at a deep level and show solidarity with, um, with both the past and also with different uh, ethnic groups and, and racial groups. And so uh, corporate identification, it, it, it's a very subversive concept um, given our kind of moment that we live in. It's always been subversive, but it's really subversive now because it involves disrupting what I believe is a key doctrine of Western philosophy and in many ways a key doctrine of evangelical Christianity. Uh, the idea of corporate identification or responsibility will seem strange to most Western white Christians in particular because we are so embedded in a narrative of what sociologist Robert Ballah calls expressive individualism, right? Expressive individualism. Now, this, this idea and concept shouldn't be surprising given that kind of our family system in America was built on the very principle of the freedom of the individual, right? Like that's kind of woven into the fabric of what it means to be an American. It was outlined in detail in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Patrick Deneen, who's a political science professor just up the road at Notre Dame, uh, explains this. So this is, this is something that's not just uh, a Christian problem. This is kind of an American challenge, right? And in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, um, in, in that book, he's not using liberalism as like a, a category of, of left. He's saying just the, the kind of idea of a, a liberal democratic republic, right, when he says liberalism. He explains how this idea of, of, the, of expressive individualism is at the very heart of the American experiment of a liberal democratic republic. And so kind of surveying history and looking back on uh, how kind of uh, our founding fathers built on uh, some ideas from the past but then shifted and transformed some things and, and essentially uh, change the anthropology of how we think about what it means to be human. Here's what he says. What was new is that the default basis for evaluating institutions, society, affiliations, memberships, and even personal relationships became dominated by considerations of individual choice based on the calculation of individual self-interest. And without broader consideration of the impact of one's choices upon the community, one's obligations to the created order, and ultimately to God. And he said it's built on two primary pillars. One is, is uh, kind of a pillar of the disruption of time, and the other is a pillar of the disruption of place, right? That's how we get individualism, is we, we find ourselves timeless and placeless. He, he mentions this idea of uh, the disruption of time. He calls this a pervasive presentism, right? This pervasive sense of we live in a forever now, right? Kind of unhinged from any idea of the past or the future. It's right now. So here's what he says. More than a system of government or legal and political order, liberalism is about redefining the human perception of time. It is an effort to transform the experience of time, in particular the relationship of past, present, and future. It's a kind of weaponized timelessness. Grounded in a deep hostility toward the past, particularly tradition and custom. The fracturing of time is embraced as a form of freedom, a liberation especially of personal obligations we have to those with whom we share past, a future, and even ultimately the present itself. He goes on to talk about placelessness, and he says liberalism also valorizes place placelessness. Its state of nature posits a view from nowhere. Abstract individuals in equally abstract places. Not only does liberalism rest on the anthropological assumption that humans are from no one, but that we are from nowhere. The place where one happens to be born and raised is as arbitrary as one's parents, 
one's religion, or one's customs. One should consider oneself primarily a free chooser of place as of all relationships, institutions, and beliefs. What he's pointing out is that what is kind of the air that we breathe as Western Americans and as Western Christians is itself a sociological phenomenon, right? Like, we think this is just the way that the world works, but anybody who's grown up in a context outside of America, who would have grown up hundreds of years ago prior to the establishment of our democratic republic, would have thought this is the most bizarre thing ever, right? They would have thought this is weird. This is not what it means to be human, right? They were time full, and they were place full. There was a sense of connection to the past, to the present, and to the future, a sense of indebtedness, right? Like, there was this mentality prior to kind of the West of um, we are trustees, we are stewards of the past, right? And so we don't get to just jettison those things that we don't like and just live in the now. We have to consider where we came from and also where we're going if we're going to be a whole society. So what happens is um, this experiment gets underway and people in the dominant culture of America who, who basically profit and benefit from this system carry this individualistic mindset with them into every domain of society, right? How we shape our morals. Like, he goes in and talks about how individualism is not just a right or left thing. Like, on the right, he says, individualism plays out economically in terms of economic liberation. On the, on the left, or the progressive side, he said it plays out in terms of personal moral uh, uh, individualism, right? Personal and moral liberation, cultural liberation. But he says both sides are doing the same thing. We're engaging in a deep, deep expressive individualism. And so he goes on to say, essentially, liberalism is failing, it's faltering, because it succeeded in carrying out this radical individualism. And so some of the things that we're experiencing culturally trace the roots back. It's kind of a, a design feature and a design flaw in the way that our very republic is formed from the beginning. And so we carry these things with us. And unfortunately, the church, I think, has also been co-opted in this expressive individualism. We have baptized this individualistic mindset as culturally normative for the church. Right? If I didn't personally do it, then I'm not responsible. Like, people have asked that during this series. Like, I didn't lynch anybody. I didn't own any slaves. So I can't be held responsible. I didn't burn any crosses. I didn't sit on those school boards that made those decisions. So I'm not responsible. That is just not the way that people in the Bible talk. Right? When you look at the scriptures, we have to come to terms with this reality of corporate identification and corporate responsibility if we're going to make any progress in healing our racial wounds. We will not be able to sustain. We can do it once or maybe twice, but we will not be able to sustain rhythms of confession and repentance and reconciliation and justice without a deep identification and solidarity. Right? Because things are different when it's just me versus when it's we, right? If it's me versus you or us versus them, like, that's different. But we're talking about, like, think about your own family. When it's your children, you feel differently when there's a sense of a collective we than if it's just a, an, aggregate, an aggregation of individuals who happen to share the same living space. I believe if we're going to disrupt this narrative of individualism, and uh, racial injustice that we experience. We must move from an individual-driven Christianity, Christian identity, to a community-driven Christian identity, a community that's rooted in an understanding of the church as a historical and global 
and multicultural body. A community connected with God's redemptive story in the past, in the present, and in the future. Including, and here's the key, including both our ugly sins and the gospel's beautiful work of restoration. All of that is our inheritance. All of that belongs to us as the people of God. As a, a community of we, we, we we're, what I'm saying is it doesn't eradicate the individual. I'm not talking about collapsing everything into just a mass. But I am saying a community of we that honors me but puts me and my individual identity in proper context. That's what we're saying. So this is the heart of corporate identification in the Bible. Let me just give you a definition that we'll use uh, for this series. God relates with humanity covenantally as both a me and a we, or individually and corporately. We are shaped by, connected to, responsible for, and even encouraged to confess the sins of our theological and biological families. While it's appropriate to repent of collective sins of the broader covenant family, both past and present, this does not mean that God's, God holds individuals guilty for the sins of others in the same way. Now, let's, that's a lot. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. What does that mean? I, I think we get the idea of corporate identity sometimes. So I, I've lived in Indiana now for eight years. Uh, one of the clearest examples to me of this uh, and it's, and it's, it's uh, more kind of an ethnic identity, in some ways an ethnic religious identity, is Notre Dame fans. Right? Like Notre Dame fans, like 90% of you didn't go to Notre Dame, will never go to Notre Dame. It's really expensive. It's hard to get into. But people get all whipped up and excited, even though it's been 30-something years since like the last, it's like, we, the Irish, and there's chants, and you're kind of brought up in this, especially if you're Irish Catholic, right? Like Drew grew up in Chicago. It's like there's an Irish Catholic identity and a solidarity with being uh, a Notre Dame fan. And, and so we, we, when Notre Dame does well, we do well, even though we, most of us, never actually attended Notre Dame or even grew up in South Bend. Um, we saw this a couple years ago with Lynn Sanity, right? When Jeremy Lynn uh, rose to prominence in the NBA, right? There was a sense for the Asian community that he represents us. And as Jeremy Lynn goes, so goes our community. And there was a global movement called Lynn Sanity. Um, in my own home uh, state, there, uh, I'm, I'm a Kentuckian. So I grew up in Louisville, uh, if you can't tell by my accent. And uh, in the Career Journal, every once in a while in the sports section, they'll run this column that talks about, um, it's called something like Kentuckians in the NBA and the NFL. And they like track like all these kids who grew up in Kentucky high schools, how are they doing in the NBA, right? And how are they doing in the NFL? And they'll kind of like tell their stories. This is the, the idea of corporate identification. We do this sometimes with like sports um, and, and some forms of like religion, but for the most part, we, we, we don't do this very well. But there are examples of that when we suspend our individualism and we step into corporate identification. Um, if you re read the Old Testament, you'll see this everywhere. Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 3 through 6 and 8. Daniel says, uh, we have sinned. Like, he's in exile in Babylon, and he says, we have sinned. We, you'll see throughout the passage, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled. Next slide, you'll see him talking about the past. We have, listened to your, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, 
our fathers, that word fathers is the word ancestors, to our ancestors and to all the people of the land. To us, not just me, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame because we have sinned against you. You see the same thing in the book of Ezra when revival breaks out in, uh, amongst the remnant who are left in, in, in Jerusalem. One of the first things that Ezra does when they discover the book of the law is they confess corporately their sins. They identify with the past and say, we have done this. Notice Ezra chapter 9. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And he goes on to list very specifically what those sins look like. Not in generalities, not these crazy racist people a couple generations ago. We have done these things, even though he wasn't even alive. Nehemiah does a similar thing you read in chapters 1 and chapters 9. And not just in the Old Testament, Jesus refers to groups in the New Testament. He calls groups of people, the apostles call groups of people to repent. He talks, Jesus speaks to the wicked generation, and he calls them to repent in Jerusalem. The churches in Revelation are called to corporate repentance, regardless of which individuals were responsible for the sins listed, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. One of the most powerful examples of corporate identification is in the book of Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, which we tend to reduce down to spiritual gifts passage. This is where you go to talk about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if the, uh, sorry, uh, go back, there we go. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now get this, he's not just talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about ethnicity. Oneness is not just about a monocultural group of people all using their gifts to serve a body. It is a multicultural reality that he's talking about here. Jews and Gentiles. There's a racial dimension to this oneness and this body interdependence. He also speaks of class, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. And then he goes on to list out what this looks like. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. David Anderson, in his book, Gracism, reimagines this passage through the lens not just of spiritual gifts, but of race and culture and class. And here's what he says. This is his interpretation of this passage. Now, the body is not made up of one culture, but of many. If the black should say to the whites, because I am not white, I do not belong to the body, it would not make it true. The blacks should still be a part of the body whether they vote for the same candidates or not. And if the whites should say, because I'm not black, I do not belong to the body, it would not make it true. The whites should still be part of the body whether they clapped their hands and shouted loudly in church or not. It doesn't mean they're not filled with the Spirit. If the whole body was tightly structured, where would the sense of spontaneity be? If the whole body was spontaneous, where would the sense of order be? As it is, there are many parts and many cultures, but one body. The Cuban church cannot say to the Haitian church, I don't need you. 
The Puerto Rican church cannot say to the Mexican church, I don't need you. The Pakistanis cannot say to the Persians, I don't need you. The Japanese cannot say to the Koreans, I don't need you. The suburban church cannot say to the urban church, I don't need you. The city church cannot say to the country church, I don't need you. Jews cannot say to Arabs, I don't need you. Palestinians cannot say to Jews, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are not to be dismissed or discarded as if they don't matter. They are God's special instruments of honor to reveal an aspect of God that would otherwise not be seen or experienced. There really is no part of the Christian body that is to be dismissed as unimportant. They all matter. If Palestinian Christians suffer, we all suffer. If South African Christians are freed from apartheid, apartheid, we all rejoice with them. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one dehumanizes, we all dehumanize. We are responsible. That doesn't mean guilty. It doesn't mean God legally imparts guilt to you or charges you as an individual with the guilt of those sins. Ezekiel 18, 20 makes it clear that each soul dies for themselves. They stand or die on their own merit, right, before God. So it's not saying that you are legally guilty for those things, but it is saying you collectively, we covenantally share past, present, and future across racial and class lines with our brothers and sisters in the global, multicultural, historical church. So when we begin to live that way, when we begin to identify and and express solidarity with people across those boundaries— Then it begins to open up space for us to feel differently because now it's we and not just them or you. It opens up space for us to deal with all of these deep emotions that we bring into conversations around injustice and division, both inside and outside the church. The the space to deal with these is what the Bible calls lament, and that's our second movement. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our service here. It's lament. Now, what is lament? Some of us have no idea what this is, right? If you've grown up in church, Probably half of you know what this is, and half of you had no idea what this is, right? Um, Sun Chan Ra, who wrote a book called Prophetic Lament, um, looking at the book of Lamentations, like we have an entire book of the Bible that, that tells us what lament is and shows us what lament is. Here's his definition of lament. He says, laments are prayers of petition arising out of need. But lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. If you look at the book of Psalms, one Old Testament scholar says you could basically break up the book of Psalms into two types of Psalms, praise Psalms and lament Psalms, right? Um, lament constitutes 40% of all psalms, right? The church's worship book, 40%. Now, here's what's interesting. Somebody did a study of uh, Protestant hymn books, and they looked at, over the last, like, 100 years, uh, how many times they lamented in the the hymn books. So 40% of all psalms are hymns. This survey of hymn books reveals that less than 20% of those hymns are laments, Somebody else did a study of the top 100 worship songs that the church sings. Uh, It was around 2012. And only five of the top 100 would qualify as a lament. What do we like to do in church? Woo! 
Yeah, let's go, God. We like to celebrate. We build our liturgy off of celebration. Because for us, we don't like to face pain. We don't like to be uncomfortable, especially in the modern church. We don't like to be reminded of inequality and injustice and suffering in our own lives or in our communities. Ra goes on to say, the American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized, and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost. But absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart forget. The absence of lament in the liturgy of the American church results in the loss of memory. We forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain. We forget the reality of suffering and pain. Lament helps us remember. I mean, over and over again, you read the Old Testament, they're always bringing up the past. Don't forget what God's delivered you from. Don't forget your own sin. Don't forget the sins of others against you. Not to wallow in those realities, but to give glory to God and to cry out for God to rescue and to save and to be present as he was in the past. Emmanuel Kantengole, a Ugandan theologian, says it like this. Any resurrection of the church as the body of Christ must begin with lament, which is an honest look at the brokenness of the church. Without lament, we move on too quickly to reconstruction. The book of Lamentations was written for this very reason. It's written in response to a dead body. It's a funeral dirge, right? It is a dead body, Jerusalem and the temple laid waste by the Babylonians. And we have five chapters of very graphic, R-rated laments. I mean, very graphic laments. It describes in detail the sin and the corresponding devastation of God's chosen people. But it also reminds them that through it all, Yahweh remains the faithful Lord Overall, he will restore his people. That's the gift of lament. And so what I want us to do now is just to stop. And for the rest of our time together, you notice earlier we skipped our prayer for renewal. We're going to bring that prayer for, for renewal into this space, but do it as a lament, right? Um, when it comes to uh, racial injustice and division, we feel all of this pain. So many of you have asked me, what do I do? right? It's a very Western way to think about this. What do I do? How do I fix it? And the first thing we have to realize is we don't fix it. God fixes. We sit in the pain, and we feel it, and we cry out for God's salvation. We lament realities in the past very specifically as they did in the book of Lamentations, and then we say, God, would you make your mercies new today as you do every day? God, would you restore us as you have your people in the past? So we're going to take some time together. Emily's going to come and join me. Um, and we are going to lead you through uh, some prayers together. This is a call and response. And so we're going to be uh, uh, reading some prayers. We've adapted some of these. Others have written these. We've adapted and written some of our own uh, from some different churches and denominations who are doing similar things. And so we will read the plain text out One of us will read the plain text out loud. And then the underlined portions, we'll just invite you corporately to agree 
uh, with God and to agree with these prayers and to say, Lord, have mercy. After we do this set of prayers, the call and response, we're going to read a portion of Lamentations, and then we're just going to open up some space for a few minutes for us to pray out loud together, right? You can pray silently in your chair. You can get in a group with people around you and begin to pray. You can just pray out loud. We just want to open up space for people to cry out to God and to pray together, right? So again, just breathe. This is weird for some of us, but this is what the church has done for many, many centuries, right? And so uh, let's just uh, let's take a moment to breathe, and then um, and then we'll start with these prayers. We pray for our country and church that you would use this season to shape us into a nation and community that embraces more of the values of your kingdom. Lord, have mercy. For the leaders of the nation of our city and for all in authority, that they would be effective advocates for justice and reconciliation for all of our neighbors, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, for the refugee and immigrant, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Can we get this mic on right here? Sorry. of what it means to live in the United States. We thank you for the privilege and freedom that living in this country provides, and for the ways we do see the values of your kingdom present in our society today and in the history as a country. But we also lament the ways that this country has and continues to participate in and perpetuate systemic evil in the form of racial injustice and oppression. Lord, have mercy. We remember that this country was built on the defeat and subjugation and deprivation of those native to these lands. And we lament the ways that many in these communities still struggle to thrive because of the wrongs that were done to their ancestors by those who founded this nation and by any policy still in place that creates an uphill battle for our native brothers and sisters to thrive in this nation. Lord, have mercy. Remember that much of the wealth, power, and advantage of this republic was built on the backs of slaves, and that many of us today have inherited lives of advantage and comfort. Many of us, in at least some part because of the ways that our ancestors profited from that domination, enslavement, and segregation of primarily black men and women in America. Lord, have mercy. We lament the way that the scars of slavery live on today in the ways that our black and brown brothers and sisters are still statistically under-resourced and underpaid, disproportionately incarcerated, and otherwise often disenfranchised compared to their peers and neighbors. Lord, have mercy. We lament the ways that people have been and still are treated wrongly because of the color of their skin and country of origin. Make us aware of our own conscious and implicit biases and empower us to use our advantages to create safety 
and flourishing to others who do not have some of the same opportunities that we have. We repent of the ways we have been complicit. Lord, Lord, have mercy. We lament the history of church segregation caused by the enslavement, discrimination, and exclusion of people of color from predominantly white churches, institutions, and resources. We repent of the ongoing ways we are complicit in normalizing, prioritizing, and idolizing one race over another in our beliefs, values, attitudes, worship styles, hiring practices, church planting strategies, and resource allocations. Lord, have mercy. We recognize the ways that the American church has been active in, indifferent towards, or otherwise complicit in the degradation of your Imago Dei in our nation's minority cultures and people groups. We repent. Make us liberators, protectors, and champions of your Imago Dei in every God-ordained variety, and set the American church on fire as a beacon of multicultural restoration for the sake of the world. Lord, have mercy. We ask you to tear down strongholds of racism in our policy, in our leadership, and in the spiritual realms of this neighborhood, our city, and nation. Lord, have mercy. Tear down hidden racial strongholds in our own hearts, whether they be stereotypes, biases, hostilities, suspicion, self-righteousness, shame, guilt, or fear. Expand our compassion and sow grace in our hearts as we stumble towards Christ-likeness in these confrontations. Lord, Lord, have have mercy. For our hurting world and for the unity of the church as we respond in courage, strength, and compassion, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. And now we're going to read from the book of Lamentations, and we'll put these up on the screen for you. Um, You can just read them off the screen. Remember, O Lord, what has been befallen on us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Our fathers perish and are no more, and we bear iniquities. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this that fills our hearts has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne to all the nations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Lord, hear our prayer. So what we want to do right now is just open up some space for prayer. Um, our only, I guess, two guidelines, one would be, as, and we have an open room like this, we know that anybody could say anything, and that's one of the risks that we take when we pray together, and that's okay. 
but we'd ask that all these prayers be given in the name of Jesus. He's our Lord and our Savior, and he's the one to whom we pray as a Christian church, and so we'd invite you to pray these prayers in the name of Jesus. Um, We also want to invite you not to um, fix other people and not to be correcting other people or offering your own personal thoughts and opinions. This is a space of lament where we look honestly at our past and our present, and we cry out to God for his present, his, his power and work in the future. And so we'd invite you just to lament from your heart and to cry out to God for your own sin and for the sins of others and to ask God for his mercy. So let's not make this a time where we, we feel the need to correct somebody else's prayer or to offer a solution or uh, a, a particularly a, a, a political uh, idea here. We want this to be a space for us to cry out to God. So let's do that. You can pray out loud. You can get with a group here for a few minutes. You can just pray silently in your own seat, and then I'll come back up and I'll close this and we'll end in communion.